I'm just stood underneath the heater over there. It's <laughs> warm and toasty. And it's cooler here, but um, I expect I'll soon generate a bit of warmth once I get into my stride. Um, right, so we, we come to our penultimate session in this short series on, on Zechariah. Um, last time we looked at chapter 9, uh, sorry, the time before last we looked at Zechariah 9, 11 to 13. And in those verses we saw the remarkable foretelling of the time when Judah, under Judas Maccabeus, would overthrow the Greeks and regain its independence. That was then 300 years in the future, but history tells us that that is exactly what came to pass. And we saw that the emphasis in that foretelling was on what the Lord would do and on the fact that he would do that because of the blood of his covenant with his people. Last time we started to look at verses 14 to 17 and from those verses we considered the various expressions that the Lord used to denote himself. Uh, In the space of just four verses he designated himself in four different ways and we saw how those descriptions each reveal uh, one of his attributes. They, they reveal something of what he is like. Now, I won't go over the various terms again, but from them we saw him to be the one who is eternally, unchangeably self-existent, the sovereign ruler of the universe, who has authority over all things, and the all-powerful Lord of hosts. Also, we saw that although he's so so great, uh, um, so far beyond our comprehension, uh, men can nevertheless come to know him, because he's a personal God and a gracious God. He could be known as the Lord their God, and he can be known as the Lord our God, and the Lord my God. So this is the God who made the covenant. This is what he's like, and it's why we can be confident that he will keep his covenant. Now having considered the Lord's attributes uh, from those verses, we're now going to look at the same three verses again. Uh, But this time, we'll consider his actions, the actions that, that spring from those attributes. And then next time, uh, we're going to look at his aims. In other words, his purposes and his objectives uh, that he intended to uh, be accomplished by means of his actions. And then I promise we won't revisit these verses anymore. That will be the end of this short series. Uh, (coughs) If we get back to Zechariah later, we'll move on, I promise. But for, for this evening then, the Lord's actions... Now, throughout these verses, we're told at least four things that the Lord will do. And they're all things that he will do for his people. He'll do those things because of his covenant with them, and because he's the God that we saw him to be last time. And the four things that we see that the Lord does for his people are that he separates them, summons them, shields them, and saves them. So, unashamed 
alliteration there. Uh, firstly, we see that he will separate his people. See that at the beginning of verse 14, where we read, Then the Lord will appear over them, his arrow will go forth like lightning. Now, the, the idea of the Lord appearing over them would bring to mind that time in their history when he'd led them out of Egypt and through the desert and brought them to the promised land. In Exodus 13, 21 we read, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. And then later, when the tabernacle had been built, uh, we read in Exodus 40, 34 to 38, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out uh, till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. What had he been doing by appearing over them in that way? Well, really, he was singing them out. He was saying, these people are mine. He separated them out from the Egyptians. And what had distinguished them from the Egyptians? Well, outwardly, it was the blood on the doorpost, wasn't it? But that represented the blood of his covenant, that covenant that we've been thinking about in these verses already. What made them different from the Egyptians? It was his covenant with them. And of course, his covenant with them separated them from all other nations. So it wasn't just the Egyptians that they were separated from. They, they were distinctively, exclusively, his people. So what Zechariah was foretelling was that uh, when, he, uh, when he stirred up your, your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, uh, it would be because he appeared over them and singled them out. Uh, as his own separated them from the Greek culture that had uh, overtaken them at that time. That, of course, is exactly what he's done for every believer in Christ, isn't it? Remember Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 6, 16-18, where he says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So he will separate his people out. Although living in this world, we are no longer of the world. We are distinct from it because we belong to the Lord as his people. 
Next we see that he will summon his people. Uh, carry on in verse 14, we read, The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. Now, what does his sounding the trumpet signify? Well, it's, it's a rallying call, isn't it? It's a call to come to him. He doesn't only separate his people out, he also calls them to himself as the sovereign ruler of the universe. Um, that was Jesus' message, wasn't it? Come to me, Jesus said, come to me. He summons us to come to him. But there's more to this call than, than just a, a calling to him. Notice we're told that he will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. So he's on the march. He means business. He's marching to war. And he's sounding the trumpet is a call to, to rally round him. It's a call to, to join his army and to follow him into battle. It's a call into his service. And the believer in Christ is also called to rally to him, isn't it? And to serve him in battle. You look at Paul's words again, this time in 2 Corinthians 10. And then in verse 3 we read, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. Uh, you know, he renders that as for we are uh, for, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. Now he's not saying we don't wage war. He's saying we are waging a war, but not in the way that the world does. A very different sort of world. War. It's not with swords or bows and arrows or missiles or, or drones or whatever. We're waging a different sort of war. What's different about the war that we're called to wage? Well, firstly, our warfare is different because of the weapons that we use. There in the verse 4 we read, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. The weapons we use are not fleshly, they're not worldly, they're not physical weapons. We use weapons that have divine power. That they're spiritual weapons to demolish spiritual strongholds. But secondly, our warfare is different because of the enemy we fight against. Uh, verse 5a we read, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. So our warfare isn't against flesh or blood, it isn't against people or, or nations, no, it's against arguments, it's against attitudes, philosophies, mindsets, worldviews, uh, and anything else that opposes the knowledge of God as he has revealed himself. Thirdly, our warfare is different because of its objective. Continuing in verse 5 we read, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Or as the Almighty puts it, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. The object of our, our warfare isn't to, to win a battle or, or win an argument. No, during the way back in the days of the, the Iraq war, when you'd hear reporters speaking in terms of the battle to win hearts and minds. 
And what they meant by that was the, the, the struggle to, to win the Iraqis over to thinking that the war was a, a good thing and that they were, to, they were now much better off. So for the gratitude to those who waged that war. Well, our battle is also one to win hearts and minds. But its objective is very different. Our objective is to win hearts and minds for Christ so that uh, thoughts that were once set against the knowledge of God are turned towards him and become obedient to Christ. We're called to serve our Lord in that battle. And waging any war is a dangerous thing, isn't it? Um, when the sons of Zion rose up against the sons of Greece, they faced great danger. Throughout history, believers in Christ have faced great danger when wielding their, their spiritual weapons. Uh, for believers in Christ in, in many countries today, heeding his call and waging spiritual warfare uh, on his behalf means facing great danger. So the next thing we read that the Lord will do is that he will shield his people. See that there in, in verse 15. The Lord of hosts will protect them. See, he doesn't summon his people um, with the promise that they'll face no danger, but he does promise protection from danger. Uh, the, the Hebrew word used there means cover, as with a roof or a shield. So this is a, a picture of the Lord providing protection against dangers. Uh, the Athens Olympics uh, was a long time ago now, it was back in 2004, but you might remember that at the time there was a great deal of speculation about whether the roof would be in place on the stadium in time for the games. People were so concerned about it because of the, the searing heat in Athens and the danger that it would be to spectators if they were exposed to the sun for hours on end. The roof was considered essential to protect them, but it was very much touch and go whether or not it would be in place in time. As it happens, it was so all as well. But there's nothing touch and go about whether the Lord will protect his people, because we're told the Lord of hosts will protect them. He will do it. As they follow him into battle, they will be shielded. They will have his protection. And you see, it's not just uh, that he'll provide a shield and hope it's strong enough to withstand the battle. He will shield them. The Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, will himself be their shield. So there's no question of the shield giving way. The protection is sure. And that's exactly the protection that Jesus uh, offers, isn't it? You remember his words uh, to Jerusalem uh, back in Matthew 23:37, when he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. He offered them his protection. You know, even though that they had a history of killing the prophets, stoning those sent by God, he was ready and eager to protect them from the wrath of God. He is the shield and protector. And tragically, 
they were completely unprotected and what God did come. Why? It was because they were not willing. Just as they killed the prophets rather than heeding their words, so they killed Jesus rather than heeding his words and coming to him and finding shelter under his wings. As he lived among them, he was the Lord of hosts who would protect him, but they chose to ignore him. It's very different for those who do willingly come to him. You read in 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 3, But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. That's the NIV puts it, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Oh, look at 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for our salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Those who come to faith in Christ are protected or shielded from their enemy, who is the evil one, because they're being guarded by God's power. Now, as if separating, summoning, and shielding these people isn't enough, next we see that the Lord said that he will save his people. That passage we just looked at in 1 Peter has said that those who have been born again by God's power are being guided through faith for a salvation. And that salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time. Well, that's what verse 16 of that passage is saying here, isn't it? On that day, the Lord, their God, will save them as the flock of his people. But the Hebrew word that's uh, translated there as save, it, it really has the meaning of to make safe or, or to bring to safety. And the Lord, their God, will make them safe as the flock of his people. So the picture is of the Lord acting as a shepherd. It started with him separating them. He said, you're my people. He was really saying, I take you as my flock. And then we saw the summons. He called his flock to follow him through danger. But he shields and protects his flock through that danger until he brings it to safety. In the immediate context, that was foretelling what he would do when he roused the sons of Zion against the sons of Greece. He had separated, separated from the evil ways of the Greeks. He had summoned them to fight against the Greeks. He had shielded them in that battle, shielded them as they did so, and he would then bring them to safety. And that's exactly what did happen. They were kept safe in the conflict, and after the victory had been won, Judah enjoyed a long period uh, of safe and peaceful uh, independence. It's also a good description of the way in which the Lord always deals with his people, both collectively and individually. 
collectively his people are his flock. And each individual member of the flock is one of his sheep. He acts as their shepherd. But David expressed it beautifully in individual terms in Psalm 23. Remember that psalm begins by saying, The Lord is my shepherd. That speaks of the Lord, having separated him to himself. The sheep don't choose their shepherd, do they? The sheep don't go to market to try to pick a good shepherd. Or he looks worth following. He ain't a good shepherd. No, the shepherd chooses the sheep. So then he says that the Lord summons him. The Lord calls him to follow. So we read, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. So where he leads us, we follow. We heed his call. He doesn't always call us. Uh, to follow through green pastures and beside still waters. Sometimes following him him means that we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It means going through frightening and dangerous places. It means being in situations that timid sheep don't want to be in. Yet timid sheep can say, I will fear no evil. That's an amazing thing for a sheep to be able to say. You know, they're such timid creatures that the slightest thing usually frightens them. How could the Lord's sheep be so unusually bold? The psalmist goes on to tell us why that is, by saying, For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He's comforted by the knowledge that his shepherd, the Lord, is with him and has a rod and staff to ward off all enemies. His trust is in the Lord to shield and protect him. What next? He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He's brought to a place of safety. In fact, he's brought to a place of eternal safety. As we've seen in that passage, the Lord their God will save them on that day as the flock of his people. I can't think of the Lord saving the flock of his people without remembering that Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. So in John chapter 10, verses 11 to 18, we read, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. 
and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So we've seen that the Lord would separate his people. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ owns his people as a shepherd owns his sheep. He speaks of them as my sheep. They belong to him. They are separated to him. We've seen that the Lord would summon his people. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ says his people will listen to my voice. Just as an earthly shepherd calls his sheep to follow him, so the Lord Jesus, as the good shepherd, calls his sheep. He, he summons them. We've seen that the Lord uh, will shield his people. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ said that he's not like the hired hand who leaves the sheep and flees at the first sign of, of danger. He protects and defends his people against danger because he knows them and cares for them. And we've seen that the Lord will save his people. The Lord Jesus Christ says that he will bring his people to the safety of the sheep pen. And to be able to do that, he'd have to willingly lay down his life for his people. His shed blood would be the blood of the covenant. And then he would take his life up again so that he would be alive to take all of his people to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We're not there yet, but we can be sure that he's doing all that's needed to bring us there. Amen. Amen. Amen.